Hi, I'm Pastor Kyle Carlson, and you're listening to a message from Imprint Community Church in Northeast Baltimore. I pray that this message will encourage you in your walk with Jesus Christ. Visit us online at imprintcommunity.org and worship with us in person on Sundays at 10 a.m. at Seven Oaks Elementary School. Enjoy the message. Turn please to 1 Samuel chapter 30. There's a French fable from the 15th century about some fish that find themselves in a frying pan getting cooked up for dinner. And they begin to panic. And one of them has the bright idea, let's jump out of this frying pan so that we'll be out of danger. And so he convinces the other fish to sort of revolt and jump over the edge of the frying pan. And so they all jump over the edge of the frying pan only to land in the burning coals that were underneath it, cooking the fish on the pan. And so it's called, and the saying you know pretty well probably, is out of the frying pan into the fire. That's uh, what the, the, the plight of these fish was in that fable. That's a bit similar to what David and his men uh, encounter in 1 Samuel chapter 30. The last time we saw David, uh, he, was, he and his men were gathering with the Philistine army to go and march against Israel, this massive coordinated military attack against the nation of Israel. And of course, David has been serving the king of Gath, the Philistine uh, leader, And so uh, he's been now enlisted to go and fight the nation of Israel along with the Philistines. And what we saw in chapter uh, 27 was God's, uh, excuse me, chapter 29, sorry. What we saw in chapter 29 was God's merciful uh, provision and rescue of David from that situation by the Philistine uh, leaders rejecting him and saying, we don't want David to go fight with us. We don't trust him. Um, and so uh, Achish, the king of Gath, was disappointed by that because he had come to love and trust David. Uh, and so he, but he went to David and said, the, the leaders have rejected you. They don't want you to come fight with us, so you need to go back home to Ziklag, the town in Philistine country that he had given him. And so, uh, oh, no, we're so sorry not to be able to fight in this battle. David and his men are now journeying back to Ziklag, uh, relieved of the burden Uh, of fighting against God's people, the people that David had been anointed to serve as king. And so out of the frying pan, so to speak, they've they've been lifted from the frying pan of fighting against Israel. But when they return to Ziklag, they find very bad news indeed. Let's look at the first few verses here of chapter 30. And tragedy strikes. Now, when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, the Amalekites had made a raid against the Negev and against Ziklag. They had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire and taken captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great. They killed no one, but carried them off and went their way. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. David's two wives also had been taken captive, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. 
And David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him, because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. So they've been relieved of this burden of fighting against Israel. And so I'm sure that the journey back home, even though it was long, took them three days to get there. I'm sure there was plenty of of levity and lightness and joy. Wow, look at what God has done to deliver us from uh, from that uh, dilemma that we were in. And so the journey back home is probably one of of, of joy and, and maybe even laughter, maybe envisioning what it's going to be like to kind of be reunited with their families when they get back home. And wow, we get to tell them the story about how God saved us from this situation. But when they arrive... They find that tragedy has struck. They find that the Amalekites, that great enemy of Israel, enemy of the people of God, uh, have attacked Ziklag and burned it and taken all of their wives and children. We have the note here that they didn't kill anyone, which at first you might go, oh, wow, that's really good news. But the reason they didn't kill anybody, probably, was because they intended to sell them into slavery right oh we can make money off of these people so let's bring them with us so when it says they carried them off it probably means like they rounded them up like cattle and and herded them out of the town back to wherever they were going uh, to try to make uh, a deal for them and so this is a terrible situation it is uh, it is utterly uh, destitute and de- and devastation that they return to here I'll kick that to you Oops, there you go. <laughs> Utter devastation that they, that they return to in Ziklag. This is not what you expect, right? After reading chapter 29, wow, look how God has delivered them from this terrible situation. Now they're going to go home and you expect things are going to go, are going to be on the upswing, right? We're going to see them now getting out of trouble and maybe out of Philistine territory altogether and going back to Israel. And surely David's uh, chance at the throne is, is upon us. But the very next thing is, out of the frying pan and into the fire, as it were, of the, the town of Ziklag having been burned and all of their wives and children having been taken away. And understandably, the people are distraught. It says they weep until they have no more strength to weep. They're out of tears. Their voices are hoarse from crying and wailing and mourning the loss of their families and home it says they were bitter in soul listen sometimes life will be like that for a christian we'd like to think that trusting jesus and finding forgiveness of sins and new life in christ will smooth the pathway for us right and spare us from suffering and loss but that's not at all the picture that the bible paints for those who know god in Christ. In fact, it doesn't even bother hiding the reality of suffering in fine print. It's stated boldly and plainly over and over throughout the New Testament. Jesus himself says, in this world you will have trouble. He says, blessed are you when men shall revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely. Paul says, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. We read in the book of Acts that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. 
This is the the road that the people of God will have to walk. It's a road marked with pain, marked with suffering. So we would be wise as Christians, as followers of the suffering Savior, to prepare for seasons of suffering. It may strike when you least expect it. The burning of Ziklag certainly occurred when David and his men were least prepared. They were light. Their guard was down. They thought they were out of the trouble. And they came to the fire at Ziklag. So we should be prepared. We need to ready ourselves for seasons of hardship and bitter loss and suffering as followers of Christ. The bitterness and sorrow that they experience here is so strong, so acute, that David's men begin to turn against him. Right? It said David was uh, distraught because they, had, they were speaking about stoning him. David, this is verse 6, David was greatly distressed for the people spoke of stoning him because all the people, people were bitter in soul. Now, you may remember that this group of people that David has been leading uh, were actually described with that same phrase, a bitter in soul, back in chapter 2, when David found himself at the cave of Adullam, and it said that, that this crowd began to gather to him. The description of these people was everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. And he became commander over them, and there were with him about 400 men. So his crew has grown from 400 to about 600 by this time. But these were already people that are low. These are people who are broken and distressed and bitter in soul. They've followed David. They've fought for David. They've, they've served David faithfully. But now, when it gets this bad, when the bottom falls out, these people, distressed and bitter in soul, are ready to turn on David himself. Now, it could be that they kind of blame David for the whole situation. You know, we shouldn't have been in Philistine territory in the first place. The reason that this whole dilemma was upon us was because David had the bright idea to go and try to live in Gath with, uh, with Achish and the Philistine people. And if you had never had that bright idea, this, we never would have been in the situation where we were marching north to fight against Israel and we wouldn't have been away from town and this would never have happened. So they're blaming David for how things have happened, and they're turning against him. And there is no one there for David. Now, look how David responds to this terrible situation. His own grief, his own bitterness over the loss of his wives, and the, the grief and the hardship of his people sort of mutinying him or threatening mutiny, fighting against him, stoning him. Look at the end of verse 6. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God, in Yahweh his God. David strengthened himself. There's a strong contrast here that comes up throughout this chapter, I think, between David and Saul. Just as the author of, of, of Samuel has been showing us Saul's, Saul's dilemma and hardship and David's dilemma and hardship and the way that they respond has been very different. We saw Saul back in chapter 28 
falling to his face and broken and, and, uh, and, and panicking, utter, utterly without ideas, had no idea what to do. God won't answer me. I can't do anything. And he went and actually violated divine command to find a medium uh, outside of Israel to bring up the soul of Samuel and tell him what to do. So Saul was in distress, but he was without comfort. He was without hope. He was without the Lord. And he did not turn himself and his heart toward the Lord. In fact, he went the opposite direction. But here we find David similarly brought low, but turning to God for strength, turning to Yahweh for encouragement. It says David strengthened himself in Yahweh, his God. This is how followers of Christ who find themselves in seasons of hardship and suffering and loneliness and despair are to find encouragement or to find strength. It is through a turning of the soul toward God. It is a leaning upon God and His uh, character and His promises to find strength to carry on. That is a faithful response to tragedy and hardship. It's not the most natural response. Often when suffering comes into our lives and something terrible happens and we get really bad news, often our instinct is to turn against God, turn away from Him. God, what were you doing? God, why did you let this happen? Right? There, there's even this rebellion that can come up in our hearts. What is going on? Why didn't God prevent this? Why is God allowing this to happen? What is he trying to tell me? Right? We have these kind of rebellious attitudes toward God. The, 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 the faithful way to respond, and in fact, the more effective way in terms of gaining strength and encouragement to continue is turning toward God. We need to learn the skills of finding encouragement in the Lord. There's a couple of things I think we see that David does here that give us an idea of how to do that. The first uh, is to look for the promises of God in His Word. A bit earlier, a few chapters earlier, when David was distressed and in, in living in caves and on the run from Saul, Jonathan his good friend uh, who had entered into a covenant with him, the son of Saul, Jonathan had come to him and said he strengthened his hand in the Lord. And the way that he had done that was by reminding him of what was certainly true. You will be king, right? This hardship is not going to end in uh, in your death and the kingdom being torn from you. God has promised you will be king. So Saul will not be successful in his efforts to to kill you, you will be king. And so I have to think that what David is doing here is he's turning himself back to the Lord and opening his heart to God to find strength is a reminding of him to himself of what God has promised. This looks terrible. This looks awful. How could this, how could this turn out for the good? But he strengthened himself in God by reminding himself of the promises of God. Reminding himself God has been faithful I'm sure he looked back over the last couple of years to see time and time again how God had faithfully, uh, providentially rescued him and delivered him from very hard situations. Over and over again, he had seen God's hand of provision and protection 
Even just days before, as he was about to march against Israel, God saw to it that he would be released from uh, the Philistine army and sent back home. So there's plenty of material in terms of of refreshing and, and reminding ourselves of what God has done, how God has redeemed, how God has helped, how God has strengthened, what has he promised. So look to the promises of God in his word. There's a really nice example of this in Psalm 62. David himself wrote this, and so it gives us a good example of how to, uh, to look to the Lord and lean on the Lord and his word and his promises in times of hardship. Psalm 62 says, For God alone my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. How long will all of you attack a man to batter him like a leaning wall, a tottering fence? They only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. Even speaking of opposition from people. For God alone, O oh my soul, wait in silence. For my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory, my mighty rock, my refuge is God. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. In the balances they go up, they are together lighter than a breath. Put no trust in in extortion, set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. Once God has spoken, twice have I heard this, that power belongs to God, and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love, for you will render to a man according to his work. And so David reminds himself of God's faithfulness and of his power. God is a refuge. He's a rock. He's our salvation. Look to him. Even when the situation doesn't make sense, even when it seems hopeless, even when you think there's no way this is going to turn out for the good, trust in God. God alone is our rock and our salvation. I think a second thing we can do is to trust God's redemptive purposes behind your suffering. Suffering is not meaningless. God is doing something in the midst of our suffering. God has plans and purposes for our experience of hardship that will teach us to rely on Him. Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, he says this, Speaking of the hardship that, that he and his other co-laborers in the gospel had experienced uh, through their, their work, he says, We do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. We were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. By the way, don't believe the, the proverb that people say sometimes that God will never give you more than you can handle. Paul says, we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength, we despaired of life itself. You just might get more than you can handle. Why? Verse 9. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. 
On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. There's more than we can bear that will come into our lives. But why is that? So that we'll recognize the one who has the strength is with us. The one who has the, the, the courage that we lack, the wisdom that we lack, the strength that we lack is right here with us. It's to teach us to rely on God. We don't encourage ourselves by reminding ourselves of how strong we are. You got this. That's not enough. No, I don't got this. But God is with me. And God is for me. So it should teach us to rely on God. It should turn our hearts toward Him to rest and rely upon Him. And in fact, if you just look at the story, that is, the, the Ziklag tragedy has that exact effect upon David. We haven't heard David ask for the, the ephod, that's the, the garment that the priest would wear. It was associated with the, with, with the Urim and Thummim and the, the, the inquiring of God about specific things. We haven't heard him ask for, for the priest or the ephod since chapter 23, verse 9. Or even speak of Yahweh since chapter 26. He's made foolish choices without consulting God. He's been guilty of excessive violence in his raids in Philistine country. He's been dealing dishonestly with the king of Gath. The David we've seen for several chapters is one who has sort of turned himself away from God and is seeking his own salvation in a sense. He's going to go his own way, carry out his own plan. Look where it's brought him. Not to any place good. But when David hits rock bottom... In chapter 30, verses 1 to 5, when he comes back to Ziklag and it's been burned and his family is gone and all the men's families are gone, what does he do? He strengthens himself in the Lord. And then he asks for the priestly ephod so he can inquire of Yahweh what to do. So let's turn to the next few verses of the story now. In verses 7 to 15, we will see that God guides his anointed The end of verse 6, David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. And David said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, bring me the ephod. So Abiathar brought the ephod to David. And David inquired of the Lord, shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? He answered him, pursue, for you shall surely overtake and shall surely rescue. So David set out. And the 600 men who were with him, and they came to the brook Besor, where those who were left behind stayed. But David pursued, he and 400 men. 200 stayed behind who were too exhausted to cross the brook Besor. They found an Egyptian in the open country and brought him to David. And they gave him bread and he ate. They gave him water to drink and they gave him a piece of a cake of figs and two clusters of raisins. And when he had eaten, his spirit revived, for he had not eaten bread or drunk water for three days and three nights. And David said to him, To whom do you belong? And where are you from? He said, I am a young man of Egypt, servant to an Amalekite, and my master left me behind because I fell sick three days ago. We had made a raid against the Negeb of the Cherethites and against that which belongs to Judah and against the Negeb of Caleb, and we burned Ziklag with fire. And David said to him, Will you take me down to this band? 
And he said, Swear to me by God that you will not kill me or deliver me into the hands of my master, and I will take you down to this band. So God provides guidance, clear guidance for David in the aftermath of this tragedy. As David has turned his heart back toward God, strengthened his heart in God, he immediately goes to him and says, What should I do? calling the priest with the ephod to inquire of God, shall I pursue this band? And think about it. They have no way of knowing where this band of marauders has gone, right? Uh, They're not sure exactly how long ago, probably within a week or so time, but they're not sure exactly how long ago it was that these people were uh, in Ziklag and and taking them away. Uh, At the time that David approaches the priest to ask, he he probably has no way to even know that it would have been Amalekites. So somebody came to Ziklag and burned it and took all their people, but we don't know who it was or where they are or how far they would be. So they're really without, uh, without a plan. So when David goes to God and says, shall I pursue? He's kind of like, I don't even know what I would do. I don't know where I would go, but should I try? And God gives him an assurance. You shall pursue. You shall overtake. You shall rescue. But he doesn't give him more steps than that at this point. Right? He says, go. You will rescue them. Okay, I guess we got to get started. And so they start to go south in the desert here toward the south of Philistine territory. Again, note con- the contrast between David and Saul. When Saul is in his distress on the eve of the battle with the Philistines, knowing that he's uh, up against this insurmountable force, he, it says he inquired of the Lord, and the Lord wouldn't answer him. God was utterly silent when Saul tried to uh, pray and ask God what to do, because he's already made his heart toward God clear. He's, he's rebelled, he's rejected him. So God doesn't answer. But with David, having come to his senses, in a way, and returned to the Lord, God is ready to answer him clearly and provide him with guidance. And so David and his 600 men set out. And uh, it says they stop at the brook Besor because some of them are just too exhausted to carry on. And if you think about it, they had marched up toward Aphek, where the Philistine armies were gathering. And then they had marched back three days to Ziklag. So they've been on a long journey. And then, of course, there was the burden and the the stress of finding Ziklag burned and all their people gone. And they've been weeping until they couldn't weep anymore and in distress. So they're just worn out. So they're on the way. They get to this brook and about 200 guys just go, we can't continue. We can't keep on. We, we, We have to stop. And so they leave them behind apparently to, along with some of their supplies and bags and things, they leave these 200 guys there at the brook and 400 of them continue. So David's small army is actually dwindling now. So he's only got 400 guys in pursuit of, they're not sure who at this point, some band of raiders that they hope to be able to find. Well, God answers once again in his kind providence by providing them an Egyptian slave who happens to have been a servant of one of these Amalekites and got left behind when he fell sick. And so they find him. They find him in the desert. And, uh, and so they feed him and they help kind of nurse him back to health. Uh, and then David interrogates him. All right, who are you? Where'd you come from? 
and he finds out. Uh, I was uh, the slave of one of these Amalekites, and, and he kind of gives a report of what they'd been doing and confirms that they, he was a part of this band of raiders that had burned Ziklag. He lists that among their, uh, their activities. We burned Ziklag with fire. And so David recognizes this as God's providence, and so he decides, instead of taking vengeance on this guy, to get some information. Would you lead me to this band? And the guy, in exchange for amnesty, right? All right, if you promise not to kill me or to deliver me over to my master when you find him, I will take you there. And so they agree to that. And so now David knows exactly where to go because he has a guide with inside knowledge because God has clearly and providentially provided the guidance that he needed. He is kind, he is merciful, he is generous. Now look at verse 16. This is what happens when they find the Amalekites. When he had taken him down, behold, they were spread abroad over all the land, eating and drinking and dancing because of all the great spoil they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. And David struck them down from twilight until the evening of the next day. And not a man of them escaped, except 400 young men who mounted camels and fled. David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken, and David rescued his two wives. Nothing was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that had been taken. David brought back all. David also captured all the flocks and herds, and the people drove the livestock before him and said, This is David's spoil. God gives stunning victory to them. He's provided guidance through the, the ephod, shall I pursue? Yes, you will rescue. He's provided guidance through this Egyptian slave who had been a servant of the Amalekite and telling him exactly where to go and where to find them. And now when they find them, God gives a complete victory. You see all the emphasis on how complete this victory was? They found, uh, they, they recovered all that the Amalekites had taken. Nothing was missing small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that had been taken. David brought back all. He also captured all the flocks and herds. Over and over, we're getting the sense, like, this is a total recovery. Everything that was taken is recovered. Everything that was lost is found. There's no one who is missing or killed. There is no flock that was taken that is not recovered. When they find the Amalekites, they find them completely unprepared. And you got to think, the Philistines, of course, all of their forces are up north about to fight against Israel. So all of these Amalekite raiders think, man, we got like free reign over this whole place. So they're going from town to town, taking everything because all of the warriors are gone, right? So they're kind of taking their time. So they've gone from place to place, gather all these spoils, and they're just partying. They're just like, woohoo! They figured they got all the time in the world because the Philistines are away at battle. So they don't expect David and this army of 400 men to be showing up. Um, and so they find them unprepared, and it says they spent the day basically taking them down. And there's comments that, that could be made about the, the, the language here of the, of the twilight of one day till the evening of the next day. Uh, it might be something more like kind of dawn to dusk, depending on how the timing of the day is, is marked. But the point is, a day or so is spent just 
killing Amalekites, <laughs> and they take them all out. It says, this is interesting, it says, not one of them escaped, except for 400 men who rode away on camels. You know, wait, how is that not one of them? That sounds like 400. That's a little more than one. So there's probably a little bit of kind of overstatement to make the point, but here's, here's what, what I think we can draw from this. There's 400 men who escape on camels, and that's a small enough contingent of this group to be considered total victory. Not even one of them escaped. So I think the, the implication is this group of Amalekites is pretty big. And David and his army were really small. So who gave this victory to David? God. This was God's victory to David. God provides this incredible, complete, total recovery. None of the women or children have been killed. They rescued all of them, including David's wives, as they mentioned specifically. And they're able to take back a massive amount of spoils from the Amalekites raised on other places as well. So they get what's theirs and what's the Amalekites, right? The stuff they've taken. So they, have, they go back with more than what they lost. And so they begin going back and, and they put all the livestock in front of them as they're going. And the people are saying, this is David's spoil, right? This is, this is complete victory. And it's just an expression of God's grace and kindness. God is able to restore what has been lost, what has been stolen. Just as he did that for David and these men, he, he can do it for you. He can restore what's been taken. There's this beautiful verse in, uh, in, in the book of Joel, this Old Testament prophet. It says, God speaks to his people through the prophet Joel. He says, I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten. Like there has been a season of drought and famine where God had actually sent locusts to, to eat their crop for four years in a row so that they're destitute and needy and hungry and without help. And God turns and God says, I can restore to you. There's going to be seasons now of abundance and, uh, and fruitfulness. Uh, and you'll find more than what you would have had in that four years. Right? So just like David here, you get what was lost and actually more than that. You come back with more than what was taken. This is, this is God's just generosity and kindness. He will restore the years that the locust has eaten. Remember that too in your season of suffering. In your hardship, what seems lost and destroyed now, God is able to restore and multiply in his time and in his way. Maybe not exactly as you would plan it, maybe not as quickly as you would hope for it, but God will restore what is lost. And so in the final verses we see, uh, this, is, this is the last that we see from David in 1 Samuel. So obviously 2 Samuel continues the story, but this, this is the last glimpse we get of David in, in this book. And it really sort of sets the stage for him taking the throne in Israel. It, it, it's a preparation for David becoming the king of, uh, of Israel. And we see here a kingdom fueled by grace. Look at verse 21. Then David came to the 200 men who had been too exhausted to follow David and who had been left at the brook Besor. And they went out to meet David and to meet the people who were with him. And when David came near to the people, he greeted them. Then all the wicked and worthless fellows among the men who had gone with David said, because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered, except that each man may lead away his wife and children and depart. But David said, 
You shall not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord has given us. He has preserved us and given into our hand the band that came against us. Who would listen to you in this matter? For as his share is who goes down into the battle, so shall his share be who stays by the baggage. They shall share alike. And he made it a statute and a rule for Israel from that day forward to this day. When David came to Ziklag, he sent part of the spoil to his friends, the elders of Judah, saying, Here is a present for you from the spoil of the enemies of the Lord. It was for those in Bethel, in Ramoth of the Negev, in Jatir, in Aroer, in Sifmoth, in Eshtimoa, in Rakal, in the cities of the uh, Jeramaelites, in the cities of the Kenites, in Hormah, in Bor Ashan, in Athak, in Hebron, for all the places where David and his men had roamed. Let's draw out a few things that happen here. I think this final scene of David in 1 Samuel provides some very hopeful setup for the coming kingdom, both in terms of the kind of character that we've been kind of waiting to see in Israel's king. Saul had some promise at the beginning, but then has been just an utter disaster for years. We've been longing to see somebody with, with godly character leading God's people. And in terms of sort of just wisdom and shrewdness and the kind of political maneuvering, if you will, and relationship building that will smooth the pathway toward his kingship. The first thing that I see that is so important here is in, the, is in verses 21 to 25, where David deals generously and kindly with the weak. He's got 200 people in his crew that just didn't have the energy to continue. And so they left them with the bags at the brook and they continued. And they come back and some of the men, he calls them the wicked and worthless fellows who were among them. Remember, he's got this kind of ragtag bunch of warriors, right? So uh, some of them are, uh, are mad that these people stayed behind. And they think they should not have a share in the spoils, right? They've probably read the little red hen. If you don't help bake the cake, you don't get to help eat the cake, right? So they have this, this principle, like the one who fights deserves to eat, right? You work for what you get. You get what you deserve. So they have this theology of works, right? You get what you deserve. And the thing that you get uh, is that what you earned, right? So if you fight, you eat. If you don't, you don't eat, right? So give them their wives and send them on their way, but they should have no share in the spoils. And in fact, they're kicking them out. They're really saying they shouldn't even be a part of us anymore. Like we, we, they want them to be gone. But fortunately, fortunately for the 200 baggage watchers, of course, uh, and for us, David displays a beautiful theology of grace. He's not willing to do that. He says, brothers, we will not do this with what the Lord has given us. And then he makes this principle, as his share is who goes down into the battle, so shall his share be who stays by the baggage. We shall share, they shall share alike. Like, this, is, this is for all of us. And why, what, what's the key to it? What's behind this, this grace theology that David operates from? It's that phrase where he says, we will not do this with what the Lord has given us. So the folks with the, the works theology, this is ours. We fought for this. This is our spoil. David says, no, 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 no. The Lord gave this to us. 
This is from his hand. We don't get to take what he's given us and be stingy with it and go, nope, not for you, only for me, right? This is from God. Everything that we have is a gift of grace from God's hand. That is what David recognizes. And so because what they have is from God, it's free. It's for all. And listen, isn't this the dichotomy that faces people even today? How can a sinner be made right with God? How can salvation be achieved? The theology of work says, fight the battle, earn the reward, right? Try hard, be kind, be a good person, blah, 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 and God will accept you, right? But a theology of grace recognizes our brokenness and our need, and it doesn't pretend that we have any hope of climbing a ladder of good behavior in order to reach God. A theology of grace banks on the kindness of God toward undeserving sinners. This is not our doing. We didn't create this. This is from God's hand. A theology of grace calls out to God for mercy and then takes God at his word when he says, your sins are forgiven you. That's grace. It's God's work. It's God's gift. And if you take that just a step further, you can see Jesus very clearly in this story. Friends, Jesus went down into the battle for us while we stayed behind at the brook. We were too exhausted. We didn't have what it took to fight the battle. Sin had consumed us. God's justice and judgment was upon us. We had nothing left. And Jesus went into the battle on our behalf. Jesus went to the cross. Jesus took our sins and our brokenness upon himself and he paid the penalty that was ours. And he rose from the dead and the spoils of his victory are enormous. It's eternal life. It's hope. It's defeated death. It's vanquished grave, right? The spoils of his victory are enormous. And who are they for? They're for our sorry selves waiting back by the brook. Jesus comes back and he says, this is for you. I did this for you. I went down into the battle and the spoils are not mine alone. They're for you. Praise God. Because of his abundant kindness and grace, he lavishes upon us all his share in the spoils of victory. That song that we sing sometimes, how deep the Father's love for us has this line at the end that says, why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer, but this I know with all my heart. His wounds have paid my ransom. Why should I gain? It's not mine. They're not my spoils. They're his. But Jesus says, this is for you. I fought the battle so that you could share in the spoil. Praise God. And then David's final move in this chapter is to reestablish relationship and build rapport with the, the, the leaders in Judah, right? kind of southern parts of, of the nation of Israel where they've apparently been hanging out for these couple of years in caves and wilderness and whatever else around these towns. And so they have a lot of spoils from this victory, apparently. So he's shared it with his men who fought and with the men who didn't fight. And now he's actually sending some of it on to disperse among uh, these various towns and villages around the south of Judah saying, These, uh, this is a present for you from the spoil of the enemies of the Lord. And so 
as we're on the brink of David ascending the throne, we see here, uh, we, we see here David establishing this connection with the people of Israel in, in the southern part uh, of the nation and saying, I'm fighting your battles, right? Th- these are spoils from the enemies of the Lord. And so have this gift. And so that'll only smooth the way, right? That, that'll only make the, the pathway toward the people recognizing and welcoming and accepting him, him as their king uh, more smooth. And so that's the last glimpse we get of David in this book. Chapter 31 deals with the final uh, fall of King Saul. And so we'll look at that next week as we conclude uh, 1 Samuel. But if you just look at the shape of this chapter, the chapter begins in turmoil. Right? They've come back to Ziklag and they've found utter disaster. It's burned. Their families are gone. It, it begins in turmoil and tragedy, and it ends in triumph. It ends in God having restored everything that was lost. And in David on the way up, right, the pathway of David to the throne seems clear. It seems to finally be smoothing out after these years of wilderness wanderings and fleeing from Saul. It begins in turmoil, and it ends in triumph. And such is the promise of the kingdom of God. It begins in hardship, begins in brokenness, it begins with sin and, and, and shame and guilt heaped upon us. It begins in the, the, the fires of, of adversity. But as God builds, as Christ builds his kingdom and brings his people together and saves a people by grace for himself, the kingdom expands and the kingdom ultimately will have the final victory and will last forever. And there's a king coming. It's not David. There's a king coming who will reign on the throne of David forever. And that kingdom will end in victory and continue forever. Psalm 30 verse 5 says, Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. That's the promise of the kingdom of God. There's weeping, there's hardship, there's turmoil and tragedy. But God is at work. God is present. God's kingdom is growing. And if we'll look to Christ, we can participate with Him and share with Him in the glory of that kingdom. Let's pray.